O Come, Thou Key of David, Come. A brand new title for Jesus that we see in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And one that's really interesting, I think. It only really appears um, explicitly twice in Scripture. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting metaphor that we're going to dive into. But before that, just a reminder of the last couple of weeks. We have taken a look at what, it, what the, the biblical imagery of Emmanuel, this title for Jesus. We've discussed what it means that Jesus is the day spring. And Emmanuel means God with us. So God is with us. God is the day spring. Uh, Jesus is the, 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 the dawning of a new day over history is how he described it. And those two, God with us and Jesus being the day spring, uh, really helps us to have hope. Because we can look back in awe and wonder at the thing that God has done in the birth of Jesus in the incarnation, God has come with us and a new dawn, a, a, a new, excuse me, era of history has dawned. And then we can look forward to a second advent with Jesus, when Jesus will come again in glory, when there will be another new day, or, or at least the, I, I shouldn't say that actually, it won't be a new day, it will be the, the sun will fully come up to lighten the, 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 the fullness of, of reality with the glory of God. We see in the coming of Jesus the beginning of a sunrise. And when he comes in glory again, it will be the sun fully coming up over the horizon and filling the world with his light. We saw, we've seen these, uh, these images in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the song, as well as in scripture. And this week we see a brand new image that, that Jesus is the key of David is, is how the hymn describes him. Although we'll see that's not quite how scripture uses this metaphor. And uh, the metaphor has a, has a very particular connection to the, the Jewish people and Jewish culture, especially in biblical times. And in the time of Isaiah, and, and, and um, even before that, with the Davidic, the, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David, the kingship of, of, of David. So let's read the passage. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So we see this image, the key of David. And this is God speaking about someone. You notice, he says, I will place on his shoulders. And the immediate question that we should have is, whose shoulders? Whose shoulders are the keys of David being placed upon? If you've ever heard a sermon about this passage, you might have been told, well, it's obviously Jesus. This is a prophecy about Jesus. And I'm not sure that it is, in fact. And there's a couple of reasons for that that we'll uncover. But having said that, I think this passage helps us to understand Jesus when he talks about the keys of David, as we are going to see. So let's take a, a, a bigger look at this passage. First off, the passage really starts at the beginning of chapter 22. 
and it's a it's a a long passage where God is is basically declaring judgment over uh, over Jerusalem and saying because of your corruption because of your pride I am going to judge you and it will surely come to fruition and this is all this becomes all embodied in one person in verse 15 it says the Lord Almighty says say to this steward to Shebna the palace administrator what are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock now for us this doesn't seem that big of a deal but in the ancient world chiseling a grave for yourself chiseling into rock is sort of making a monument for yourself and this is not a person who would usually have a monument built for them but whoever this shebna is we're told is the palace administrator thinks of himself so highly that he goes out of his way to build this monument build this massive grave for himself chiseled out of the rock so that future generations would come and say look at how great this person is god looks at that and says no 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 <laughs> you are filled with pride instead of caring for the people in jerusalem caring about justice caring about the the, the widows and the orphans instead of doing all those things you're more worried about the monument that you want to create for yourself this monument that that you hope people will remember you by he goes on to say guess what you're not going to be remembered you're going to be cast off into into the wilderness and you'll you'll die alone um and that's what happens we we don't actually know anything about this fellow beyond this passage after after this he just sort of goes bye-bye what god says happens and it happened to him what are you doing here beware the lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away you mighty man it says <laughs> which is which is peak irony he had a concern for himself not for the sins of israel not for the sins of the people of god it's really easy to build monuments to yourself it's really hard to walk in repentance and dive deeper into relationship with God. I'm sure you felt it in your own life. It's hard to turn ourselves towards Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I need your forgiveness and grace. I need you, Lord. I need you. We've, it's, it's a famous worship song now, but it's actually really difficult to do. It's much easier to say, well, I can do it all on my own. I can build the monuments, I can do the work, and I don't need I don't need you, Lord, I don't need you. We'd never confess it, but it's often how we live, isn't it? God would look at that and say, No, 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 no. You don't get the point of living. You don't understand that that's not what I want for you. I want for you to care about your sin 
so that you would be drawn into repentance. I want you to care about justice and righteousness enough to be able to turn to me, God would say. Lean on me, accept my grace and forgiveness and be transformed by me. But when we don't, we end up like Shebna. Shebna uh, God has not pleased with him. So that will dispose you from your office. You'll be ousted from your position. Now, what is this position? What is this office? We're told it is the palace administrator. And, um, and this has something to do with the key to the house of David being on one's shoulders. And the best description that I found for exactly what Shebna would have been doing is sort of like a chief of staff for the president or for the prime minister. They are the ones who would grant audiences, would keep tabs on things in the kingdom and communicate that to the king, um, would ensure orderly governance. Uh, the chief of staff, the, the sort of gatekeeper of the king. That was Shebna's role. And God says that has to be taken away from you because of your pride and because of your sin, because of your unrepentant heart. So instead, he names someone else, my servant, Elakim, who he says, I'm going to clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. All these things that, 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 um, Shebna would have looked at and say, these are the, these are the symbols of my status that he would have held close in his pride. God says, I'm taking them away from you and giving them to somebody else. And above all else, I will, he says, place on his shoulders, the key to the house of David. Now notice he doesn't say, I'm going to put it, put the keys to the house of David in his hands. So they're going to place it on his shoulders. He's going to bear the weight of being the palace administrator, of being the one who gets to decide who goes to the king, who gets to keep tabs on the governance, who ensures that everything is done in an orderly way, who ensures that justice is being brought in within the within the kingdom and sort of keeps the keeps the king informed about everything that needs to be that that the king needs to be informed by. Here's why I don't think this passage is about Jesus, because it actually goes on to describe um, Elikim as a peg driven in a firm place who can't be moved, but God says this peg driven into a firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall and the load hanging on it will be cut down. And he says every every part of the, the it, because the entire weight of the key of David, all of the authority of David's kingdom is placed on this person's shoulders to try to steward. And they're going to be firm in doing it, but one day they're going to break. He says, that's, this is going to be a sign of judgment, not just against this one person, but against the whole of Jerusalem, against the whole of God's people. So we see that the key of David is some sort of a metaphor for the 
kingship and the authority of the king. And for uh, Shebna, as well as Elakim, that authority was given, the, was they're, they're, they're given stewardship over that authority, with that authority to be able to, um, to be able to serve the king. They're not given the keys of David, but they help, uh, they help the king to steward those keys. Jesus is different with the keys. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We um, saw in our series through Revelation last year this passage, and I think we really quite quickly skipped over it. Um, trying to get through all of these letters of Revelation in a in one Sunday, if I my memory holds. But we see in verse seven, you can look for the church in Philippi. That's the heading, or, that, or excuse me, the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia, verse seven, and go down into the letter. So the angel of the ch- to, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, excuse me, who holds the key of David. Previously, the palace administrators were given the keys, and uh, but placed on their shoulders, not placed in their hands. Now we're told Jesus holds the keys. Now this is, a, this is a, a small change, but it's really important because it means that Jesus carries the authority of the kingdom himself. It's actually suggesting he is the king. Jesus is the king. He holds the keys of David. It's not on his shoulders. It's in his hands. All of the responsibility, all of the authority, all of the power that comes with the key of David is in Jesus's hands. Jesus doesn't have a chief of staff. Jesus doesn't have a gatekeeper, in fact. Do you know how we can approach Jesus? We can just do it. We don't need to go through um, other people. We don't need to go through high priests anymore. We don't need to go through pastors. We can approach God on our own. Jesus doesn't have a chief of staff and he holds the keys to God's kingdom. The kingdom of David was a, uh, was a geographic kingdom. But God's kingdom, which will come in fullness with the new creation, is not a geographic kingdom in a sense. It's, at least right now, a relational kingdom. And that changes how we think about Jesus being our king. At least it should. Because it means that in any given moment, we are being called to live as citizens of that kingdom. To live as, as citizens who live under the reign of Jesus as our Lord. Now, if Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of David, if we want in... We don't go to the palace administrator. We actually go straight to him. Jesus is the one who lets us into the kingdom. It's, it's through 
him. It's through relationship with him. It's only through an audience with the king that we're given access. That audience is, is held with one who, who died on the cross for our sins and who resurrected to new life and who offers us grace and forgiveness because he took on the penalty of our sins so that we don't have to experience it. He took on the wages of our sin and paid the debt that we deserve to pay. As king, as Lord, Jesus holds all authority and power in the universe. Not just in not just in his kingdom, but actually in the universe, because God's kingdom, we're told in scripture, is coming in fullness to encompass all of creation. And so we just see bits and pieces of it. If you've ever seen something like a dam break, um, Liam's, Liam loves Bob the Builder, and so we watch Bob the Builder a little bit too much in our household. Um, and one of the Bob the Builder movies... Which, in fact, might be the only movie. Now that I think about it, um, Bob builds this massive dam, but an evil guy tries to tries to ruin Bob, repu- Bob Bob's reputation. Anyways, the dam ends up breaking, but it starts out with small cracks, and the water leaks through the cracks. And then the cracks go bigger and bigger and bigger, until the dam just fails and all the water rushes forth. That's sort of how the kingdom of God is breaking forth into the world into a world that is filled with walls made of sin and darkness. There are cracks that Jesus has caused that little by little are being made bigger and bigger until the kingdom of God breaks forth into them, destroys those walls of hostility once and for all to make, to, 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 and, makes, and makes all things new. For Isaiah, God's kingdom was t- totally political. It was, the, it was the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of, of, of Judah. It was a literal geographic boundaries that they watched. For Jesus and for us, it's relational. God's kingdom is God's relational reign over all of creation. It's God's relational reign over us. And that presupposes that we are in relationship with him if we confess that we're part of that kingdom. God's relational reign means that in order for him to reign over us, we actually need to accept that reign. We need to enter into his kingdom, which means entering into a relationship with him and, and, and recognizing him as king and as Lord over our lives. As one who has the authority to say, here is how I want you to live not arbitrarily, but because it's the best way for you to live. It's, it's the way that I intended you to live as a human being. That's what Jesus' teaching is often all about. It's saying, you, I, 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 I want to teach you how to live fully as a human being. And there are limits within which human beings need to live in order to flourish as human beings. And our culture would push back against that and say, no, 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 get rid of any limits. But again and again, scripture says, no, there are, there are limits to what it means to 
to to live a flourishing life as a, as a human being and here is what they are and lays them out and we just have to decide do we actually accept that Jesus is lord and has the authority to be able to say here is how I want you to live or not and if we say no Jesus doesn't really have that authority um I'm not sure we can reasonably say that he is our lord and if he's not our lord in what sense is he our savior because those two come as a package we accept jesus as our savior and our lord we accept his forgiveness and grace but he expects the response to that to be obedience to his lordship to his kingship and for us to live as citizens of his kingdom not citizens of our own kingdom that pay lip service to him i think this is why sometimes christianity just doesn't make sense to people who are outside of christianity because of god's relation if if god's kingdom is god's relational reign then it actually only makes sense once you enter into relationship with jesus if you're not in that authentic relationship of dependence with god um, the, the, the structure of the Christian faith just isn't able to make that much sense. It seems a bit strange and it doesn't make sense. It's, it might actually seem quite offensive. And that's okay. God's relational reign is slowly breaking forth throughout all the earth. And the holder of the keys of David is the the, the king with whom we enter into relationship with. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus holds the, the keys to God's kingdom. And this is why the rest of this verse in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is so powerful. Here's the rest of it. Uh, actually, I'm going to read the whole thing. So come, O Come, thou key of david come and open wide our heavenly home to make safe the way that leads us on high and close the path to misery wow jesus opens wide our heavenly home and this this is often taken to mean that he makes the way for us to go to heaven when we die but that is not the i guess that is not the full understanding that scripture provides for what heaven is, let alone is like. And it's not, it's actually, it's much more complex of the, of a new heavens and a new earth smashing together to create one new beautiful reality bursting with God's glory. So thinking of, um, sort of the Philadelphia commercials with angels in the sky, that's not what heaven's going to be like. Heaven's going to be way better than that, like way better than that. You can read the end of Revelation to get a glimpse of it. You know, we think that heaven is coming tomorrow, whenever that tomorrow may be. But Jesus says, no, 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 the kingdom is breaking into the world right now. His, his opening line of, the, of what the gospel is in the gospel of Mark is, is, is the kingdom of God has come near. And in other places, he describes it in parables as, as the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. The previous verse of this song have maybe helped us to look forward to Christ's coming 
while this verse will help us to look forward to his kingdom coming, a kingdom where we don't just experience a heaven um, after we die, but that a, a way has been made open for us to begin to experience heaven now through, our, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts and our minds to be able to live as God intends for us to live and as we will live in heaven, glorifying him with all of our beings and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. God's kingdom is breaking into the world slowly but surely, person by person, relationship by relationship until that day when we can be in relationship with Jesus, worshiping him face to face. And as that day comes, we experience the hope and the joy, the love and the peace of God in the midst of this crazy life that we heard from Ecclesiastes is just a vapor. But in the midst of that vapor, we can grasp hold of Jesus and experience his kingdom life and his kingdom love. We can worship God now and begin to experience the freedom in God's spirit that we are going to experience in heaven. But it starts with relationship with Jesus. It starts with submitting ourselves to our King. It starts with repenting of saying, I am a sinner who does not deserve grace but saying, thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your mercy. And because of the grace that you have given, I will respond by living how you want me to live. And as we are filled with God's spirit, as we worship in spirit and in truth, as we learn to live the life of heaven now that we are going to live fully in the future, as we submit ourselves to the holder of the key of David, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and transforms us from the inside out. And in place of despair, we're filled with hope. In, dis in, in, in place of our worries, we're given peace. And in the place of misery, we're given joy. Such that we are able to sing, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. O Israel, the kingdom of God is in breaking, but one day it will fully break through. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So, church, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus anew. Submit your life to him. Worship the king of kings who holds the keys to God's kingdom. And ask the Holy Spirit to transform you into the kind of kingdom person God designed for you to be. Let's sing this verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel together.
And let's pray. Father, I pray that this verse would be our prayer this week. And that you would help us to submit to the, the holder of the key of David, the one who holds authority over over the heavens and the earth and all that is under the earth, the, the one who is the, the ruler over all of creation, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. In the midst of this week, Father, I pray that you would help us to make wide in our hearts this, this heavenly home that you've provided for us. Help us to, to look forward to it, but also help us to begin to live into it by the power of of your spirit make our ways safe and and move us away from paths of misery but towards the path of righteousness that you have set out before us and help us father to rejoice replace our despair this week with hope replace our times of worry with your peace and and replace any misery that we might have with your joy a joy that is drawn from our relationship with you. And help us to sing anew each day this reminder to rejoice, rejoice, because Emmanuel shall come to us. But we pray you would do that soon. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you.